Join Global Gene September 18th and 20th in San Diego for the 2019 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit as the largest gathering of rare disease patients, caregivers, thought leaders, and other rare disease stakeholders in the world, the summit is an unparalleled opportunity to forge meaningful connections with other rare advocates and take home actionable strategies and tools to accelerate change. To learn more or to register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash PA summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash PA summit with the P, A, and S in Summit, all uppercase. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Susanna Cahalan was a young journalist at the New York Post when she began developing signs of what doctors thought was schizophrenia or some other psychiatric disorder. In reality, Cahalan had developed a rare autoimmune disease in which her own body was attacking receptors in her brain. She documented her frightening journey into madness and her ultimate diagnosis and treatment in the best-selling book Brain on Fire. Ahead of her keynote address at the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 18th in San Diego, we spoke to Cahalan about her diagnostic odyssey, the critical role the support of her loved ones made, and what allowed the doctor who diagnosed and treated her to succeed where others had failed. Susanna, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about your book, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, your rare disease odyssey, and some of the implications from your own experiences. For listeners not familiar with your story, though, let's begin with anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. What is it? How rare is it? And how does the condition progress? Well, um, you know, uh, in short, the um, autoimmune encephalitis, anti-NMGA um, autoimmune encephalitis, is when the body's immune system um, begins to target and basically attack the NMDA receptors in the brain. And the NMDA, NMDA receptors are all over the brain, um, but they're um, predominantly in the frontal lobes in the hippocampus, and they're very much involved with learning memory and behavior mess with the NMDA receptors to some degree and you'll get um, behavioral issues and you'll get psychosis, you know, really wipe them out and, and you're, you're going to die, basically. So the NMDA receptors are hugely important and um, are implicated in this illness. Um, the disease is rare, um, but is not as rare as previously thought. Um, Anti-NMGA receptor autoimmune encephalitis is actually one of many different types of autoimmune encephalitides, as it's called. Um, so that I think from what, I, from what I've heard and understand, there are, you know, over 20 known types of autoimmune encephalitis. Anti-NMGA is just one type. Um, and it's rare 
but it's actually not that rare. Um, according to a recent study, uh, about 14 uh, per 100,000 people will develop autoimmune encephalitis in their lifetime. How Sorry. treatable is the condition? So, you know, with um, swift and aggressive treatment, um, about 75 to 80% recover well. Um, the key term there is well, uh, because it's, it's not full. And a lot of people um, really have to live with long-term effects of the illness. And um, they really have to come to terms with, you know, life that may be different before developing um, the illness. And, and how is it diagnosed today? So it's diagnosed typically via spinal tap, uh, lumbar puncture. Um, and it's actually um, part of the autoimmune panel. So when your spinal fluid is sent off, to a general panel, um, it should be testing also for autoimmune encephalitis. When I was sick, it was not part of that panel. You actually could only test for it at the University of Pennsylvania, but that was 2009, and this has been several years, and there's been major advancements in the diagnosis of this disease. One of the things I, I found fascinating about the book was really reading it as a, a piece of reporting. A, a, a good part of the time that's covered here is a period that you don't remember or misremember as a result of the condition. Can, can you talk a little about what it was like to do the reporting and write about yourself in a deeply personal and, and vulnerable place, but also to be removed in the sense that in, in some ways you were writing about someone who you were disconnected from? I mean, absolutely. Um, there was such a remove in writing this book because I don't remember so much of what happened to me. So I had this strange, um, you know, this intersection of two different kind of reactions. When I'd find something particularly kind of upsetting or dramatic, um, part of me would think, gosh, this is great, you know, because this is going to be great for the narrative. And then part of me would be horrified and kind of have to go through this traumatic time almost for the first time again. Um, uh, so it was a it was a very bizarre experience reporting this out, um, and you know, I, and I was actually of everyone I interviewed, and I interviewed my parents, my friends, doctors, nurses, etc. Um, I was the most unreliable. So in many ways, it felt like writing and talking about a very good friend, not about myself, but of course it was about myself. So it just made everything heightened, more fraught. You know, um, it made interviewing people very difficult because you want them to open up and be honest, but the person they're talking about is sitting right across from them. So it was just so many um, different layers of difficulty and strangeness, basically, in, in putting this together. You were a young reporter at the New York Post when you began to have symptoms. How did they first manifest themselves? Well, you know, I have hindsight now, right? So I can really, I think I have a good natural history of the disease, which I didn't have while it was happening. Uh, I think that it started when I believed I had bed bugs, and that was, um, it didn't just, it wasn't just a belief, it was more like an obsession, uh, and it was out of character. I was really obsessed with the idea that bed bugs had invaded my apartment. Um, after that, it kind of went to more depression. I was misdiagnosed with kind of a mono, you know, so lethargy, kind of flu-like symptoms, being generally down. Um, that was kind of the next stage. And then 
the stage after that was probably the most extreme, and that was psychosis. You were misdiagnosed with a, a list of potential psychiatric conditions. In part, this was because of the negative test results the doctors got when they tested for the things they thought of. I'm not sure I'd find a lot of fault with doctors missing a diagnosis for a condition they didn't know exists, but it strikes me that the fact that you were having seizures would argue that there was something physiological occurring and that along the ways, doctors seemed ready to dismiss that and declare you bipolar or schizophrenic or something else. In the world of rare disease, getting a, a diagnosis that you did in, in about a month's time would be considered fast, I think, by by many people. But absolutely, were doctors too willing to move on to the next patient in the absence of finding answers? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a very interesting question of what it means to be labeled slash mislabeled with a psychiatric condition, um, and what and what avenues that opens and closes. Um, and I, again, as you said, a month is not a long time, and I was exceedingly lucky. Um, despite um, getting those misdiagnoses, ultimately, I believe that those seizures, which you mentioned, um, which which were never actually captured. So, um, though there was self-reporting, and my you know hus- my now husband, my boyfriend's time, and my parents observed them, they were never actually captured ictally. So um, there was a prevailing belief that they might have been pseudo seizures. So the seizures, however, definitely saved my life, I think, because, as you said, it started to um, kind of push the doctors in a more, and I'm going to put kind of um, quotes around these terms, but organic, you know, neurological conditions. Now, I'm um, of the belief, and I've actually, I wrote a book, it's coming out in November, about these very topics that um, this dichotomy uh, between the mind and the brain, between organic and, and psychiatric, I think are really misguided. And I think in a lot of ways, my illness shows how misguided that is. Because I think, you know, 10 years ago, you know, even long, you know, I, you know, had I, this disease not existed, I likely would have gotten a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So um, it begs the question of what is schizophrenia, basically, or what are these labels that we use and what do they mean? And what do they mean about, um, getting, you know, uh, getting help and treatment and proper care. So, um, but, but as you said, you know, and in the end, a month is not a long time. And there are so many people and people I've interacted with personally who have these odysseys um, of trying to find an answer, um, something that makes sense. And a lot of times, uh, I've, you know, anecdotally reported to me that um, sometimes these psychiatric um, diagnoses are kind of handed down when um, no other answers make sense. And uh, in my mind, that's just not good enough. You were fortunate to have found Suhel Najar, the neurologist who diagnosed you. What do you think was different about him that allowed him to properly diagnose you? Well, I think there are a few things. Um, one of them is that his, his background and training. So um, he... Uh, is not only, um, not to say only, it's not, nothing is merely, but, uh, you know, he, he was a neurologist, so he is a neurologist, he's an epileptologist, he's also a researcher, so he sees that at the cellular level, 
he sees it also at the macro level. Uh, he's very much um, obsessed in some ways with taking an in-depth patient history. Another thing that set him apart was that he spent a lot of time in my room um, interviewing me and my family. Um, and he had also handwritten about three pages of notes. And I realized most physicians don't have the luxury of taking that time to be able to and being able to handwrite. Most places now are, are electronic medical records. But I do believe that that really, you know, being able to put pen to paper and spend time with us and actually look us in the eye while doing that, um, really, you know, he was very much present. Um, and he also saw the whole trajectory of the illness um, in a very holistic way as opposed to I'm just looking at the immune system or I'm just looking at the heart or I'm just looking at the psychiatric presentation. You know, in his notes, you kind of see the wide gamut of the symptoms that I was presenting, even if the psychiatric ones were the most robust. He really had parsed out um, all the various symptoms that made up uh, that made up basically, you know, what I looked like at that time and led him to the proper diagnosis, I believe. You refer to him as the man who saved your life. How at risk were you for having a, a very different outcome? You know, I think highly. I mean, you know, of course, it's conjecture, but, you know, at the time, um, this is 2009, the disease got its name only two years before. I was the 217th person to be diagnosed with the illness in the world. So, um, you know, again, the luck came in there. It, people, most people did not really know that this was a possibility. And um, I, I definitely think this could have gone a far different way. And in fact, in my own experiences talking about this illness and talking about mental health in general and rare diseases, I have come across um, several examples of people who I kind of call my mirror image of those who did not get the diagnosis as swiftly as I did, and, um, and, and unanimously their outcomes were not the same as mine. So I really am every day grateful, and um, and I realize how kind of privileged my situation is and, and how lucky I am to have really come across Dr. Najjar at the right time. Reading the book, I, I also was quite struck at how different your story could have been if not for the advocacy of your parents and their support and the support of your boyfriend and now husband, Stephen. How important yeah. do you think that support system and that advocacy was? Oh, I mean, I would have been gone without them for sure, without without a doubt. You know, just knowing, I mean, if it's just the bare minimum of they, they were there every day at the hospital. They were by my side. They were observing how everyone from the attendants to the nurses to the doctors, how everyone was treating me, who was seeing me, who had missed an appointment, what they were saying, what tests were being drawn up, what tests weren't be drawn weren't being drawn up. You know, there was just monitoring there um, in a way that, um, you know, the passion and the presence that can only really come from a caretaker who really loves and cares about you. So I um, owe my life to that support system, undoubtedly. When you were diagnosed, you were the 217th patient with the condition. Since then, there have been many more people who have been diagnosed in part as a result of your case. Even after there had been published studies, a neurologist who treated you and misdiagnosed you was still unaware of the condition. What was it like to talk to that doctor once you were past the disease? Oh, it was enraging. <laughs> I'll be honest. I mean, it was um, maddening. And I still have these experiences. Um, you know, that was 
when I was writing the book and um, recovering still, and I'd, I'd phoned this person and kind of wanted to tell him about my story, wanted him to, wanted to interview him for my book, and he was very dismissive. And in a way, um, I could tell he was kind of in his mind, and these would would be his words, not mine, but kind of, oh, this is just a crazy person. I could just tell like, he was just very much dismissive and and didn't really have anything that he felt he could learn from me. However, and this is actually in the epilogue of my book, um, I did find out that he ultimately does know about the the illness because um, this woman I visited in the hospital. She was very, very sick, and I was talking to her parents, and they actually looked at each other at one point in our conversation and said, thank God, the doctor. They had mentioned, they had said his name, and I actually changed his name in the book, so they would have no idea that I knew anything about this guy. And so I said, how do you know him? And and they said they actually went to him um, for her diagnosis, and he said, this might be this autoimmune encephalitis thing. You should go to Dr. Najjar, and then he said... And I, I know about this because I read about it in the pages of Neurology, which is a journal. He didn't say he he had had a patient and misdiagnosed her. I mean, brutally misdiagnosed me. He was the one who um, who said that I was suffering possibly from alcohol withdrawal, you which would have um, had a huge effect on my, you know, I think it really stained, in a way, stained me, my medical record. You, you um, extended him a courtesy. Record. I'm not sure I would have. Thank you. <laughs> well, I have to say, in the first draft, I did not extend that that courtesy. And as I wrote the book, and I realized, um, in a way, I I realized I had I had to be kind because, as you said in the beginning of our conversation, you know, this was it's hard to fault the doctors. It was a very unknown illness, and um, it was and I you know I kind of hate the parlance of the zebra, but it is. It was a zebra, and um, so I I. I try to maintain that perspective, but sometimes it's hard. <laughs> well, recovery took time. Even if the autoimmune state was gone, you still had a long time to return to yourself, your personality, and your abilities. I think any experience like this changes a person, but do you feel it formed any break between who you were before and the person you are today? Oh, absolutely. And it's so interesting because I've thought about this a lot, and you know, because people have asked me, like, have, has the illness changed you, you know, physically, you know, my brain? Or, and it's so hard to say because if I were to say to you, how have you changed since you were 24? You know, of course you've changed a lot since then. And it's hard to say for me personally, the cha- the person I am now, is it a function of, you know, surviving this illness? Is it a function of living through a traumatic experience? Is it a function of writing this book and having this whole new life open up to me and this whole new passion and interest, you know, so, so much has changed since then. It's hard to say if the illness is the actual catalyst of the change um, or if it's been ever kind of everything in the aftermath of it. It's hard. It's hard to say. So in some ways I don't even want to know. I just know that I am definitely different than before. One of the disturbing things reading your book you you can't help but imagine that there may be many people who have been institutionalized or misdiagnosed as having a, a serious psychiatric disorder when, in fact, they have anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. Do you have any clue as to 
what the awareness about this condition is and whether there are people who have been previously diagnosed or previously misdiagnosed who actually have this disease? Oh, yes. I mean, that's definitely true. Um, when I was diagnosed, Dr. Najjar and others had estimated that about 90% of people were misdiagnosed. And the most common misdiagnosis in adults is schizophrenia or the schizophrenias because there's, you know, there, I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Um, and um, in children, that diagnosis was kind of autism, autism spectrum disorder. So those are the mis- most common misdiagnoses. And there actually um, was a paper, there have been many papers on the study of could people with chronic schizophrenia or even first-break schizophrenia have autoimmune encephalitis, and there have been positive indications that this, this, ha- this has happened and is currently happening. And there is actually one study in particular that um, was a woman who had chronic schizophrenia for many years, misdiagnosed, um, was later diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, I anecdotally, again, have um, in my travels, and I've, 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 I've lectured a lot across the country at medical schools and in psychiatric hospitals, I have, I have encountered people, and specifically one case that was the most dramatic. Um, I, I, I spoke at a, a psychiatric hospital, um, and after my talk, uh, the doctor, a doctor there came up to me and said, there's a person under our care who sounds a lot like you. Um, and after I left, I found out that they tested her and she did test positive for autoimmune encephalitis, but she had been misdiagnosed for several years um, and unfortunately would not regain a lot of the um, cognitive abilities that she had lost. Uh, so, in again, anecdotally and then in the research, it does definitely indicate, there is definitely indications that people are currently being misdiagnosed. Um, and um, have in the past, for sure. I know there's still not a lot known about this condition. In the case of autoimmune diseases, you know, I think of them as being characterized by flares separated by periods of remission. Do you know whether that once a patient is treated with this condition, it's gone for good? So, um, unfortunately, there is a relapse rate, and it and it depends on the antibody involved. So the antibody, in my case, I targeted the NMDA receptor, but as I said, there's about I think twenty to thirty other types that target different um, receptors. But uh, that relapse rate can vary, um, and I've heard anywhere from twelve to thirty percent chance of, of a relapse. So you you do live with that. Uh, I think that the autoimmune, uh, the NMDA variety has a, has one of the lower types of um, relapse, but it's still it's still definitely ever present. You say you wouldn't take back the experience for anything in the world. Why is that? You know, it was funny. When I was first asked that, asked that question, um, the, the the person who had actually asked me that question also had encephalitis, but a viral encephalitis as a child, and he asked me, "Would you take that back?" And I said, "Of course I would take that. Like, why would I ever want to live through that again?" And he laughed. He said, "Of course I would do." And you know. But then days later, I thought, actually, it was an extremely ungrateful response because I, my life has been so ultimately enriched by my experience um, with autoimmune encephalitis, and my story has helped so many other people, um, not just people with autoimmune encephalitis, but people with, you know, all kinds of rare illnesses or not so rare illnesses. Um, and so I have to say that it's brought so much meaning and um joy really to my life so I, I you know even though it was a terrible singular experience i think kind of in the in the larger sense it's really um it's really been kind of a re- remarkable 
a remarkable thing that has happened to me, really. Susanna Kahalen, author of Brain on Fire. The film is available on Netflix, but I encourage you to read the book for a much fuller experience. If you'd like to meet Susanna and learn more about her experience, you can do so at the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego starting September 18th. More information can be found on the Global Genes website. Susanna, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, and I can't wait to see everyone in September. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.